2: I'm author and journalist Laura Price and you're listening to Life in Food, inspiring stories in bite-sized pieces. Each episode I interview a different guest about how food has helped them through some of their biggest challenges. With a different theme each episode we look at everything from food and love to food and friendship, food and fertility and even food and cancer. This week's episode is Food and Disability with Chloe Timms, a novelist and podcaster who lives with a disability called spinal muscular atrophy. Despite being in a wheelchair, Chloe is one of the most productive and prolific writers I know, and has managed to produce an episode of her independent podcast every single week so far this year, at the same time as releasing her debut novel, which, let me tell you, is no mean feat. Chloe is the author of The Sea Women, a feminist dystopian novel that I would describe as a cross between The Handmaid's Tale and The Mercies by Kieran Millwood Hargrave. In other words, phenomenal. Chloe is also the host of Confessions of a Debut Novelist, a brilliant weekly podcast where she interviews first-time authors like myself about their writing process. You can head to her show wherever you get your podcasts and listen to her interviewing me about my debut novel, Single Bald Female. Chloe is here to talk to me today about food and disability, which is something I don't think those of us who are able-bodied think about enough. It's an important topic because food is something so many of us take for granted, but Chloe's condition means the simple act of eating is not so simple at all. Chloe, thank you so much for joining me and welcome to Life in Food. Hi Laura, thanks so much. What a a lovely introduction
3: and as you already know, I'm such a big fan of your podcast and your book and it's such an honour to be interviewed by you today.
2: Ah, thank you so much. Well, likewise, you know, I'm a big fan of your podcast as well and your book. So I'm going to start by talking to you about your disability and the relationship with food, and then we'll move on to your amazing book after that. So you were diagnosed with spinal mu- muscular atrophy when you were 18 months old. Can you tell us a bit about the condition and what it means for your daily life? Yeah, so I've got spinal muscular
3: atrophy, and it's a genetic condition, and it's a regressive um, condition. So it gets worse as I get older. So basically, my muscles are very weak, and they um, they they are um, continuously getting weaker. And so it affects everything, really. So I can't walk, um, I can't stand, I've never been able to do those things. So when I was a, a toddler, I would crawl, I would get up to kind of kneeling. And I my, my parents always said I'd put one foot on the floor, and then put it back down again, as if I knew what I was supposed to do, but I just couldn't quite do it. Um, So I was a lot kind of more active when I was younger. So I used to be able to, if I was kind of sat on the floor, I used to be able to roll over and and do various kind of physio exercises. But as I've got older, things are getting kind of harder. Yeah, so I've still got movement in my arms, um, not so much in my legs. So I use an electric wheelchair all the time. I have carers come in to help me get dressed and washed and kind of do basic daily care, I suppose. Um, but I'm still, I'm very independent, and I, uh, I, I try to, I guess, live my life fully as possible. And um, but my my condition is one that I know is going to affect me more as I get older. So that's something that when we, we're going to talk later about kind of eating and, and drinking and and all those activities and I, I try to I'm someone that eats everything and, and tries everything and I think it's a conscious part of me as well that knows as I get older eating and and basic things like swallowing are going to become much harder for me.
2: And have you always been in a wheelchair?
3: Yeah so I so I, I was diagnosed 18 months like you mentioned and so from then on I had to use a wheelchair so I pretty much was driving a wheelchair from the age of about two and a half which is quite a terrifying prospect to let a toddler in charge of a a piece of machinery but my parents used to take me to the local supermarket to practice driving because I don't think they wanted me to wreck their house so um so yeah I was driving a wheelchair from the age of two and a half and and I'd like to think I'm pretty good at it now um but yeah when I I guess when I was first first diagnosed I was in like a a pram and then a, a push along wheelchair but yeah, I'm a full um, electric wheelchair user all the time. But I th- I'd like to think I'm a good driver.
2: And wasn't it eating that actually led to you being diagnosed in the first place?
3: Yeah, it was. So we're talking back in, I guess it was 1990. And there was no such thing as genetic testing then. In fact, I wasn't, it wasn't genetically confirmed that I had my condition until I was 21, even though everyone knew I had it. So my parents took me to a clinic where they did lots of tests on me and made me hold things and do puzzles and things like that and then they asked me to eat a pet lunch that my mum had brought with me and they started to watch me eat and I was eating a banana and I think they were the doctors were speaking between themselves and said oh she's very slow at eating the banana and my mum got incredibly defensive and said she's that's just the way she eats that's that's normal and I think they knew immediately what, mm-hmm. what was wrong with me and so one of the symptoms of my condition is something called fasciculations, where my tongue vibrates constantly. And so as soon as they saw my tongue, that was pretty much they knew exactly what I'd got. Um, right. so yeah, the eating was like one of the number one signals to them as to what was um, what was going on in my body.
2: And how does it affect your eating now? So texture of food is difficult. Um, so
3: I. If things are quite kind of claggy, I often say so like with a dessert, I would have cream or something that helps me swallow food or, you know, like if you're going to eat a load of chips, if you've got fish and chips, I just like smother it in ketchup because that really helps to sw- me to swallow. But I have to make decisions about what I choose to eat. So, for example, meat can be quite difficult. I can't really eat steak if I'm out in a restaurant. I can probably have it if I'm at home because I'll choose a particular cut of meat and I I don't feel the pressure of being in a restaurant and having everyone waiting for me to finish because I'm a much slower eater. And so really I have to be, I have to think about what I'm going to eat, whether it's going to be difficult for me to chew kind of dense foods are difficult. It's yeah. Texture is really important, but kind of the sometimes things that you wouldn't expect to be difficult are difficult. So things like oranges, for example, Obviously, they're very juicy, but the kind of the flesh and the pith are really fibrous, so they're really difficult for me to chew. So if I have an orange, I tend to sort of like chew it for a while and just like leave a big pile of disgusting chewed up skin on the side, which is quite gross. But um but yeah, there's I I kind of know now which foods are fine, and sometimes I feel a bit like I love steak, but I feel like there's there's no point in me ordering it because I know it's going to be too difficult and after about two pieces it's almost like i feel my jaw is tired just mm. and there's there's no effort behind it because because my muscles are weak it literally does affect every muscle so we're talking jaw we're talking tongue so after a while you know food does food uses a lot of muscles and you'd be surprised you know after you finish dinner you can I, sometimes i can feel like my whole mouth is like okay i need a break now
2: wow yeah whereas i guess for me it's like you can feel tired after a meal because yeah, I don't know, it's just been a, a because the food kind of weighs on your body yeah. You're going through something completely different and mm-hmm. other physical challenges. But despite the difficulty you've always had with eating since you were very young, you've managed to develop a massive passion and a massive love for food. Um, which is perhaps unusual because, you know, when something is difficult, we sort of sometimes move away from it. So Mm -hmm. what do you think it was that helped you develop that passion? And and perhaps what was your relationship with food like as a child?
3: I've always been an adventurous eater. And I mean, my parents were the kind of parents who would let me try everything and would actually weirdly would cook quite adventurous things. I was having a conversation with some friends recently and I think I was the only one in in the 90s whose parents were, like cooking them curries and tacos <laughs> and trying all sorts of cuisines and so I've always wanted to try all sorts of food and I think maybe it's because I was limited in terms of texture and you know I I don't eat things like pork chop which would probably be a staple for many kind of british households yep. so I guess my parents had to find other things for me to eat and try and so that kind of adventurousness has always been there Um, I love eating out it's one of like my biggest pleasures in life and you know particularly I like going and eating in fancy places and you know having that kind of special treatment um but you know I used to do a lot of uh, I used to spend a lot of time with my grandma and we used to do a lot of baking together and now that's not something I can really do because I don't have the arm strength but when I was when I was used to see her when I was a child, you know, I'd help her roll out the pastry or um, mix the cake or whatever it was. So that was a lovely time that we used to have together. Um, but yeah, food food has always been a great love of mine. And it's the kind of thing that that's one of the hardest things to lose or to know that mm. I will eventually lose a lot of my ability to do. And I think almost now it's kind of like, I'm going to eat everything that I can because I know one day there'll be certain things that are going to be too difficult for me. So for example, um, one, I love, you know, fajitas, wraps, anything like that, but they can, after a while, tortilla wraps can be quite difficult for me to chew. So now I'm like, I'm going to eat all the fajitas in the world because (laughs) I know in probably about 10 years time, that's probably not going to be an option.
2: Yeah. So I'm going to get it
3: all in now where I can.
2: And it, when you talk about that does that mean that you will at some point be on sort of liquid foods
3: yeah that might possibly be the case I mean I know I'm so I have type 2 of my condition which is like the second most severe and I know that I'm pretty strong I'm pretty healthy for someone that's got type 2 and I know a lot of people with my exact disability have already had to have liquid diets because they're just simply not strong enough and particularly because we're very prone to chest infections. Luckily, I've had hardly any. And so liquid diets they obviously are a quick way to get the nutrients in. Um, that idea fills me with horror because I just, as I said, I love food so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm hoping that for as long as possible, I'll still be able to eat foods. I mean, there's probably quite a lot of soft foods still available in the world. But because I like so much variety, for me, that would be a real kicker to suddenly realize that so many foods are shut off from me I already have to be quite careful in what I pick um I mean I can eat. I can eat the majority of things I find raw foods quite hard so um I can't eat kind of a lot of salads and a lot of kind of you know uh raw carrot and things like that because it's just the the crunchiness it's so hard you know I when I was a kid I used to eat raw carrot and now I'd probably struggle after one or two pieces so yeah I, I notice. I noticed the change, but I'm hoping that it won't be. Nothing is ever dramatic with my condition. It's, it's always very, very slow and gradual. And I think that in a way makes it easier because you learn to adapt. It's like with the claggy food, like I used to be able to eat things like, I don't know, chocolate, steamed sponge pudding quite easily. And then when I noticed it was getting harder, I was like, how can I make it easier? And that's when I was like, I know I'm just going to pour loads of cream over it. And then and there you go, know, there's your answer.
2: It's funny because you make me think about so many things I take for granted. Like, of course, a carrot is hard to bite through, a raw carrot. Mm. And I don't I don't even think about that. Like, it's, yeah, it, we should think about much more about what we're eating and how it feels to eat it and just really mm. make the most of what we're able to eat as well. Um, you mentioned cooking with your grandmother. Are you able to cook at all now?
3: No, and I think that's one of my sort of biggest upsets I guess because being someone who loves food so much I'd love to be able to cook and I feel like I don't know whether I'd be any good but I'd like the experience and the kind of experimentation and um, I'm very much kind of other people are in control of my diet in that sense because I live with my family and my mum cooks and you know she's a really good cook she doesn't believe she's a good cook but she is Um, but if I see a recipe and I think oh that sounds really nice I have to sort of say to her, Oh, I'd like to do you fancy cooking this. And she might be like, Nah, not really. And then I miss out on that experience. Whereas I think I would have cooked that to just to give it a go. Um, and then I've also had, when I was at university and I had live in carers, they would cook for me. And I had really people that really could not cook. And I remember for like three months, I lived on ready meals because one of them just could not cook to save their life. Um, so I really do feel sad about not being able to cook because I think that's so much of people's pleasure is is the cooking part of of eating and um I think I mean I could do I guess if I had an adapted kitchen I could be able, I might be able to do I don't know make myself a sandwich but it would take me probably like an hour to do that so is it really worth it probably not because I'd probably make the sandwich and then be too knackered to eat it so uh, yeah um, you know it, it's it's something I do miss and I I miss I mean, I used to do like food technology at school, which I which I really enjoyed, but I still needed a lot of a lot of help to do that. And um it, you know, it was it was wonderful to be able to bake with my grandma, she was amazing and she used to win like prizes for her cakes and that was always just, you know, lovely to be around someone that could to could bake so well. Um but yeah, the the cooking part is is something that if I could do one thing that I can't do now, I would love to cook.
2: Yeah. And what about restaurants? Uh, I know that you really love going to restaurants but the experience must be frustrating I know we went for lunch once together and just the experience of having to get your wheelchair through a tight door and finding space for you in the restaurant is difficult to start with what what else is difficult and frustrating?
3: Yeah I think I wrecked the doorway a little bit when we went there (laughs) Um, but yeah I mean there's so many issues from access my kind of biggest bugbear really is many restaurants have wonderful websites with their menu on and all this information and yet to find a website that actually lists whether they have wheelchair access is pretty much one percent of restaurant websites um recently i actually wrote to the ivy restaurant chain to complain because they had a frequently asked questions section and they had things like can i bring my dog can i bring a birthday cake can i um you know all these questions and not not a single section on whether there was wheelchair access and you know i personally i'm not able to use the toilets in the restaurant so that that doesn't bother me whether they list that but i just think at least say whether you've got access like at least say whether you've got a ramp i went to a restaurant recently and on their website it said we have a small step at the front door but it didn't say whether they have a ramp. And so I had then had to go out of my way to ask them and then make sure that they had the ramp available. I've been I've turned up to restaurants before and who have told me they've got a ramp and then they produce like a plank of wood. And mm-hmm. I look at them like, this is what you call a ramp? Or I've had restaurants where they've got, oh, it's fine, we'll get the waiters to carry you in. And it's just A, it's like really undignified and embarrassing, but also so dangerous as well. And my chair weighs like like 190 kilograms. So, you know, it's it's a heavy thing. Um, yeah, I, I mean, the restaurant experience is wonderful and that's such an, a pleasure for me. But I hate it's such a frustration for me to be forever having to do the research of whether there's access. I mean, it takes one sentence on a website and so few restaurants do it. And the simple fact that they don't include it makes you feel like you're not welcome. And I find it even worse when there's places that don't have access and there's really no excuse for it because even if you've got a a ramp, a a step, ramps are available on eBay for like 20 quid. So there's no excuse why you shouldn't have one. And so I I find it really frustrating, particularly when there's somewhere I want to go and then they don't have a ramp. And then I've had one restaurant say to me, oh, well, you can bring your own. And I'm thinking, why should I have to bring my own Mm. ramp to access your restaurant? So that's my um, my biggest bugbear. But I, I've mentioned to you already previously that one thing I've started doing actually is taking my own knife and fork to certain restaurants and sometimes straws because since the plastic straw ban, a lot of places have struggled to kind of replace them with, with paper straws. And some restaurants I find have ridiculously heavy knives and forks. And I can feed myself, although sometimes I do find that really tiring and if the knives and forks are heavy, there's a particular Thai chain restaurant, their knives and forks are like lead. Um, and <laughs> so I always take my own knife and fork now because I know that if I use theirs, I will really struggle to feed myself. So yeah. taking some very lightweight plastic, um, ha- plastic handled cutlery is the way forward.
2: And did you get a reply from the Ivy?
3: I did they have said that they are going to change it I haven't actually checked whether they have but I really hope they do and but again it's that frustration frustrating thing that I've had to do the work there and you think why wasn't that even in their mind to me if you're if you're putting um if you're putting a, a query about someone bringing a birthday cake that how is that more important than me accessing the restaurant that's what makes me so angry
2: yeah, I mean, and such a big chain like the IV really should be leading the way with that mm-hmm. sort of thing. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you.
0: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious
1: possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
2: Would you like to give a shout out to any of the restaurants that are doing it right? I would say that um, loads of restaurants
3: are brilliant. And there's a local restaurant to me called Jojo's, which is in Tankerton. And if you're local to Kent or you've been to Kent, you've probably been there because it's one of the best restaurants in the area. They are brilliant. They even when I show up and they'll they have different kind of they've got tables and chairs that are a bit mismatched. And they will say to me, is this table OK? Like, is it too high? Is it the right height? Because sometimes tables have really, like, they're really thick, and then it's hard to get my chair under. And they're great. I mean, the biggest thing, I think, for a lot of disabled people and for me is that toilets are usually inaccessible, even if they're so-called disabled toilets. They're often not accessible. And I'm yet to find a restaurant that has a a disabled toilet that's suitable for me. Um, There's a scheme called Changing Places, which are toilets that are fully accessible, that have a bed, a hoist, and they have certain things which make them accessible for the majority of physically disabled people. But, I mean, I think a restaurant's going to have to be pretty big to have that in there. I'm sure there are. I know supermarkets have them, um, and there's a, a Wetherspoons near me that does, but I don't know yet of any restaurants that have them in their premises um that is that isn't a deal breaker for me but mm. I think I'd say most restaurants are pretty good um it, it really depends on the building and, and I know obviously there's issues with listed buildings and stuff and there's a there's a restaurant in London that I really want to go to but I can't because they're in a listed building and they've got absolutely no way of adapting it and so when you get a situation like that you just have to kind of push it out of your mind I think okay, well, I'm never going to get to go there. And that that's thats the misfortune of, of my situation, I guess.
2: Yeah. Um, well, we'll move on to your amazing, wonderful book, The Sea Women, um, which I absolutely loved. It's not the kind of book that I normally pick up to read, but um, I read it before it was published. I was very lucky to do that. And I just absolutely was completely blown away by it. Um, so can you tell us what it's about?
3: Yeah, so I think you nicely summarised it when you said it was like The Handmaid's Tale meets The Mercies. I've also heard The Handmaid's Tale meets The Shape of Water because it's a dystopian novel with a kind of fantastical edge to it, and it's about a young girl called Esther who we see grow up on this island, and it's a very secluded island, and they are ruled by a religious cult. And she Esther lives with her grandmother, who is also a member of this cult, and. Esther is very much an outsider doesn't feel like she fits in and she has a kind of longing for the sea which is seen as a forbidden thing on this island and we see her test the boundaries a little bit until one day she meets someone and her idea of life and the world is changed forever.
2: Wow that's yeah it's it's just such an incredible book and it's still the setting to me is still completely vivid I can still picture it and it's wild and just wet and just this crazy like place I can't I really can't describe it as articulately as you okay. um, now it's obviously not about food, but food does feature in the book. Can you tell me what the food landscape is like in the in the place that you've depicted in the sea women?
3: Yeah, so the novel is set in the future, but I was very reluctant to kind of give it a specific date and a lot of the influences are historical. So I tried to think about um, this place that's very cut off, what they might grow, what they might live on, what they might eat. And so I use kind of references from historical food um, recipe books. So things from like the Orkney Islands and Shetland and what they might eat and what they might grow. And so food plays a big part in the yearly festival that the islanders have where they celebrate the land and their victory over the sea and the creatures within it it that are known as the sea women so they eat kind of um, honey cake and things that I made up like honey cake and they drink things like carrot liquor so I read a lot about alcohol that's made from things that we wouldn't necessarily expect it to be made from um, and bannocks which are obviously a a cake type food which is uh, from um, Scotland and islands up there and then foods also plays a big part in Esther's coming of age because she spends more time with a man on the island who is like a, a, almost a grandfather or fatherly figure to her called Barrett. And meal times with him are very different because she's used to living with her grandmother who fasts and prays all the time and is almost treats food as a little bit like punishment in that way. But with Barrett, she has these lovely dinner times where he cooks for her and he doesn't, limit what she can have and they just have a, a nice meal together and obviously fish is a, a big part of the island because that's what they do all day so um, but meal times with him are a, a turning point for her.
2: We spoke um, together at the Margate Literary Festival in the summer and you talked about you actually really really moved me when you mentioned something about creating characters that were sort of trapped in their own bodies and it kind of reflected the The way you are trapped in, in a slightly different way do you think through writing and you obviously you've just talked about creating this world with these made-up foods and cooking and all sorts of things have you found that literature that writing is a way to escape and kind of give yourself a freedom that you don't have in real life
3: oh god yeah absolutely I mean writing is freedom and I think there are no limits in what you can write and it's such a wonderful way to explore things that you'll never do and characters you'll never be and that's that's the enjoyment of it and I mean I find I don't know whether you feel like this but the 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 most enjoyable part of writing is when you're writing something that's removed from you whether it's a character I I I mean personally I find writing the kind of villainous characters the most fun (laughs) because it's really getting into a different mindset a different frame of mind and Um, Esther is very much an outsider and I felt like probably a lot of me goes into her and her kind of her longing to be in the water and her longing to swim something which is forbidden on the island it probably relates back in a kind of subconscious way to my own life because I felt like when I was younger I could swim and I was able to with support go in the water and that's something I can't do anymore and I you know I I won a a, a cup a, a medal when I was younger for my swimming and and now that's a part of my life that I'll never do again and I don't necessarily feel like I miss it because again it's a gradual thing that I slowly kind of cut out of my life but I think naturally when you write your elements of your personality and your your longing and your obsessions feed into your writing so I think it's natural that that element of writing for freedom comes into it
2: yeah writing fiction is such an amazing way to do or create a character who is able to do and have all the things in life that you can't have it's it's really really cool for that and just a practical question how do you do you write do you type or uh, and is that tiring for you
3: yeah i do type um i'm starting to think that that's again gonna be something I need to look at and maybe try dictation software. I don't really like dictation and I feel like I'm not as good <laughs> at speaking what I want to write as I would be typing it. I do find that I'm much it's much much less tiring for me to type on my phone. So I did quite a lot of writing on my phone and I think it, moving forward I'm gonna do more um writing of my, my novels on my phone just because it's just less movement really that's Mm. all it is um there again it's it things affect my typing and my tiredness and my energy like the weather so when it's really cold my hands don't move as well um and I sometimes wear splints on my fingers to support my my knuckles so that I'm not tiring my fingers out um but it varies I mean some days I can type and it's it's not so bad and other days I I kind of describe it as feeling like my arms have been injected with lead because they feel heavy that's the only way I can describe it it's like a heaviness um and so my my setup at home is just a standard keyboard I have my my mouse on a couple of books to raise it up a bit higher but my at the moment my writing my writing method is pretty pretty normal and pretty standard but I know that eventually it's going to have to change but as with the eating I'm I'm very stubborn and I kind of cling on to what I know and what I like and to, for as long as possible.
2: Yeah. And speaking of which, are you writing a second novel? I
3: am. It's kind of early days. So I've only written about 20,000 words and uh, I'm really excited by it. I can't give too much away, but I will say that it's kind of a bit witchy. There's a commune involved and um, lots of secrets and connections between characters. And, and uh, there's actually two historical strands at the moment, which is new territory for me. Um, But I'm really excited by it. And I've also, I'm always, I confess that I'm a writer that doesn't have hundreds of ideas, but I've actually had an idea for a very different third book, which I'm kind of trying to quieten in the background Mm -hmm. at the moment so that I can concentrate on my second book
2: oh exciting (laughs) um and just a final question before we go on to the quick questions um you're a campaigner for disability rights uh is there anything that you would like the able-bodied among us to know that would help uh, people with physical disabilities or that would make us more aware and be able to be more inclusive
3: um first of all I'd say where do I start there's so many (laughs) um I mean, my, the, the main things I campaign on at the moment are travel. So travel is a pain. Um, train travel is, is my main area because that's what I do the most. And plane, air travel is horrendous. And it's something I don't really do very often because of the difficulty. Um, if we could stay in our wheelchairs on a plane, it would make our lives so much easier because the amount of wheelchairs that get absolutely wrecked is horrendous and also the process of being carried by two men you've never met before onto a plane is just awful and the amount of injuries and bruising I've had from that is just does, it makes you question whether traveling is even worth it um and the other main topic of uh that I campaign on is social care and that is something that is so fundamental to my life and it makes a huge amount of difference on my day-to-day and there's a huge crisis in social care at the moment it's severely underfunded there's about 110,000 staff shortages across the UK and the the, the hardest thing for me is that um, people maybe people don't know this but actually um, care is not free care is not like the NHS so for example I need someone to get me out of bed to help me wash to help me dress to prepare food for me put me to bed all of that and I have to pay towards that and granted it's not a lot because I do receive benefits that contribute towards the care costs and social services also pay for it but I'm paying at the moment basically about a Netflix subscription per week to use the toilet in my own house and it's my own toilet and the problem I have is that as a disabled person you're not allowed to keep savings of more than about £14,000. Because as soon as you have savings, that money is then seen as, oh, we can use this money for your care. So there's no real way that any disabled person can make a future for themselves and make a secure life for themselves. Because as soon as that money hits a savings account, that money is then taken to pay for basic things that we cannot live without. And I mean, I think that's just so unfair and I can understand why maybe if you're a multimillionaire, that you would have to pay for your own care but when you're someone with 20 grand that's maybe thinking about buying a flat or moving out or just doing something with their life to make it more meaningful or to have a great holiday or something that money is then seen as oh well now you can afford to pay for someone to give you a shower and I think that's such a a sorry state of affairs and I think that's appalling that you know, I think life can be incredibly hard as a disabled person and then to be told that I mean and the way they phrase it is that we don't take any of your earnings. But then my point is if you're not spending every penny you earn, that will then be savings. So they technically do take from your earnings. And I find that hard a hard thing to to bear really because it it makes it difficult then to be an ambitious person and to strive for more because you know you're not going to keep that you're not going to be allowed to keep that money
2: totally yeah and it's you know you as a novelist you've achieved this dream that so many of us are desperate to achieve and I know that novel writing is is not a well-paid um profession unless you're JK Rowling but you know I can I can totally see how that would you know curtail your kind of ambition and and make it Mm. so much harder if people want to find out more where can they um where can they follow you i know you're big on twitter
3: yeah oh i love i love a bit of twitter (laughs) so um i'm on instagram facebook twitter um at chloe Timms. it might be i think it's chloe tims on facebook as well Um, i also obviously as you mentioned i have my podcast Conversions of a debut novelist i also got my own website which is chloetims.co.uk on there you can also find out more about uh, campaigning I've done and um, but yeah give me a follow on Twitter because I'm always raising issues that surround disability also talking about writing and books and and food so yeah you get the whole lot
2: yeah you you really opened my eyes up to a lot of things so hopefully um, people will follow you there as well I'll put those links in the show notes as well so we will finish off by asking you the questions that I ask everyone on this podcast your relationship to food I think I know this one fuel or pleasure <laughs> 100% pleasure I, I you know I don't know whether you saw it, I think it was a couple of years ago now probably
3: about maybe about a decade ago someone had invented this liquid which was supposed to give you every nutrient that you could ever need and you would never need to eat a full meal and I remember speaking to one of my flatmates at the time and he was like what a great idea I'd love that I just looked at him in pure horror, thinking, I could not think of anything worse. Like, imagine just having, never needing to eat a meal where you could just drink this grey looking drink i mean that's just horrific to me
2: i always thought the same about yeah about that i do remember but also about do you remember in charlie and the chocolate factory there's that chewing gum that has like yeah yeah gives you the sensation of a whole sunday roast i was like why would you want that just i i I enjoy the act of chewing and yeah and, and and sort of texture of food and things it's
3: like um you know if you're ever restricting your diet for whatever reason and and you're kind of limiting something whether it's i don't know potatoes or meat there's a, there's a moment where you're like, oh, I could really like fancy the crunch of a roast potato or something like that. You know, you miss that kind of texture.
2: Life without crisps would just be <laughs> awful. Yeah,
3: I'm, I'm 100% a crisp person, yeah. so I totally understand that.
2: Um, favourite meal of the day?
3: Dinner or tea, however you... Uh, I'm someone that interchanges them both. So yeah, dinner slash tea is my absolute favourite.
2: Name one meal that always makes you feel happy.
3: I would say probably... An Indian takeaway. I really love spicy food and out of all the kind of takeaway options it would be Indian every time.
2: Well I can't argue with that. One food that has healed you? When I
3: had some surgery when I was 11 I had spinal fusion surgery and I was in hospital for about four weeks and I was allowed to come out of hospital once I was able to sit for half an hour comfortably And so the day that they gave me the okay to go home, I rang my grandma, same grandma that I used to bake with. She used to live opposite me. And um, I rang her and I was like, I'm coming home. And um, she said to me, like, was there one thing that I wanted? And I really wanted these tuna sandwiches she used to make. And when she brought them over, she'd cut them into, like, heart shapes. And that was just something that was just... And to this day, I've never had... A tuna sandwich that is as good as that like that is the ultimate
2: tuna sandwich mm, I love a tuna sandwich uh one dish that reminds you of family same grandma she as I
3: said amazing cook amazing baker she made this incredible ginger cake the stickiest like richest ginger cake which I've tried to replicate and I just just you know I've tried various recipes and made my mum going to cook them and they've never been as good but I think the when what I've gone wrong with is that my grandma used to bake it and then you couldn't touch it for like four days and you have to let it really soak in all the flavors and get like totally sticky and gooey and you know your fingers stick to the the cake when you when you touch it but yeah her ginger cake was just the stuff of dreams and I've never been able to match that
2: wait 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 have you tried the bread ahead or has your mum tried the bread ahead ginger cake recipe
3: no, you're going to have to send it to me. I'm going to
2: send it to you. It's <laughs> amazing. It's totally okay. sticky. Like I, um, it sticks to the tin or wherever, whatever right. you store it in. It is so good. I'm going to send it to you. Yes, please do. One recipe that everyone should know how to cook.
3: I think a chilli because I'm yet to find a really good chilli recipe because I think, yeah, they can be spicy and stuff, but I think there is a ri- there should be a richness to chilli and I love a chilli con carne and I always think they're disappointing whenever you have them out. Um, And it's something that I have really kind of fond memories of having. And I think as a kid, that was something that I loved, having chilli con carne. Again, probably something not every child had in the 90s, but we had it a lot in our family. But um, I swear my mum just used to use like one of those sauce jars and whether they've watered them down over the years or taken stuff out of them, I don't know. But I still haven't found the perfect chilli con carne recipe. So that's what I'm looking for, someone that can make one of them. Okay.
2: Your best meal ever?
3: In 2018, for my 30th birthday, I went to New York and I had dinner at uh, the Rockefeller Center on, uh, I think it's Bar 65. They've got an outdoor rooftop. And I'd read a lot of reviews beforehand that said, go at half past five because you can watch the sunset and then all the lights come up. And I did exactly that. And it was the most magical, amazing night. There was a thunderstorm in New Jersey that we could sit and watch. And the food was pretty good. We had like deviled eggs and just like bar food, really, and cocktails and and fries. And it was was lovely. And I can't say that I can remember every single thing we ate, but it was more like the whole experience of it was just incredible. And I don't think I'm ever going to match that in terms of like food and views, really.
2: Yeah. It's often just about the experience, not necessarily Mm. the best food that creates the best meal experiences ever. Finally, some food for thought. What is the one piece of advice you would give in terms of food and disability?
3: I think if you are with anyone who is disabled or um, you're going out for a meal with a disabled person, if you're a friend of that person and you're offering to book that restaurant for them, please just check with the restaurant that they're accessible. Do the work for them because I I quite often will do that work, not because my friends aren't willing to, to book it, but because sometimes I think, oh, I'll just do it because it's easier because then I can check that they've got accessibility, that they've got a table on the ground floor, that when I turn up they're not going to suddenly have that look of panic in their eye because I've been to restaurants before where I've booked and then I arrive and they clearly hadn't checked that I'd written it in the notes, you know, to say I oh, want an accessible table and suddenly they're having to ask people to move or, um, you know, shuffle me into the back of the room because there's no accessible area. Um, so I think, yeah, if you're, you are a friend of a disabled person and or you, you know someone and you're going out from in with them, do the legwork for them because often that's our job, and it's quite nice to have someone else do it for you. And just and and say to them, "I've booked a table. I've asked them if they're accessible. I've I've asked for an accessible table, whatever it is." And that is just the the most kindest act of friendship you can do, I think.
2: Yeah, that's very good advice and absolutely food for thought. Chloe, thank you so much for joining me, and yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, Laura. I've loved it chloe's book the sea women is out now and you'll find a link to her podcast confessions of a debut novelist in the show notes if you enjoyed this podcast you can follow me on instagram at laura price writes and you might also enjoy my newsletter which i've linked to in the show notes my debut novel single bald female is available online and in bookshops I would also be so delighted if you could rate or review this podcast to help other people find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you happen to be listening. Thank you so much and see you next time.
1: For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex
2: Ultrasoft Tissues